Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hello and welcome to Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Seigel. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita and we're here with Peter Seigel. Clever things. He said clever things. If you're hoping from some Nerdette proper, our regular episodes are coming very soon. We put out a preseason bonus episode last week, which is audio from our live event at Cards Against Humanity. And we will be back later this week with an interview with... Trisha, can we say who our interview is with? Is this allowed? Janeway! <laughs> it's with Janeway, you guys. It's with Kate Mulgrew. More recently, to many of you, probably known as Red from Orange is the New Black. That's coming up later this week on Nerdette. To hear past episodes of both Nerdette Recaps and the original Nerdette, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. So that means OG Nerdette is back. Also, just a disclaimer that I think doesn't need to be said, but we'll say it anyway, that this show, Game of Thrones, is pretty R-rated sometimes in terms of language and nudity and all sorts of things. So when we talk about the show, we talk about that stuff. So, you know, you've been warned. Okay. I feel like we can just say it's HBO rated, right? It's HBO rated. Today, we're rehashing Season 5, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones. It was called The Sons of the Harpy. Here's the clip from the episode trailer. All men must die, but not all can die in glory. You must choose Doran's way and peace, or my way and war. Give the order, and we'll clear out this rabble. What would you say if I told you of a great sinner in our very midst? May the Father judge him justly. By the way, quick word on the Sons of the Harpy. This is Daenerys, if you're listening, and you want to find out who the Sons of the Harpy are. Daenerys, if you're listening. I'm sure she listens (laughs) there in Marine. Don't look for the guys running around killing your guys. Look for whoever is making the incredibly elaborate gold masks. If you yeah, find that masks. guy, that is a really good clearly point, you're at the center of the conspiracy, because where do they get these masks? They're very nice masks. They're lovely. Those aren't tinfoil, you don't think? <laughs> I think, you know, they're, they're nice work. Anyway, let's start where you want us to start. Can we start with racks and butts, We can guys. start with racks and butts. And uh, yes. I think we'll have to add a third category. We asked for it last week. We weren't very specific about what we were asking for, but Greta, you wanted D on Game of Thrones. Yeah, man. Trisha, cut, the first thing Trisha said to me today was, you got your D. Yeah. Did you see it? So when the sparrows are beating up people in the brothel, they make everyone leave, but they beat the crap out of the guy who's having a male prostitute. Yes. Yeah. Which is an interesting notion. Because I think that viewers last week when we saw the sparrows come in and take on the high septon and beat him up, people were like, yeah, get that high septon. He's a bad guy. Yeah. And now they're picking on the gays. Now they're homophobes. And then they go poor Lord uh, Terrell, Loris Terrell. And you're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. W- wait a minute. Those guys are not actually very nice, are they? It took half an episode for the sparrows to go from, I don't wear shoes because other people need them, to beating the crap out of gay people. Yes. Like, that was a pretty swift turn from, oh, maybe this is a warmer, fuzzier version yeah, of religion on be, the show. I thought we were going to see Game Compassion of Thrones. Yeah. Evil Times. Yeah, and particularly <laughs> when, I, if I'm not mistaken, before that sequence, you spend a little time with Jonathan Price, who is nothing if not charming. And he has that great line, says, well, I turned down the wine because I'd say something religious, but actually I just don't like the taste. And he seems so nice and so pleasant. And meanwhile, the next thing we know is his minions are out gay bashing. Oof, nothing which, literally gay bashing. Literally gay bashing. Get your hands off Sir Loris of House Tyrell, you have broken the laws of gods and men. 
you think you are? Justice. And we all understand that this has a different connotation in a medieval fantasy realm that, you know, fine, they're not the 21st century, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it's pretty cruel and brutal. And all of a sudden we're going, what has Cersei gotten herself into? Oh, I think she knows exactly what she got herself into. She's using the sparrows to completely destroy Marjorie's family and get back at her for taking her family away. Yeah. It's and, pretty intense. And, and it really did throw Marjorie off because when Marjorie marches into the bedroom with her silly king, she doesn't. Yeah, she's, she she's, wasn't quite as meticulous no. as with do her. Do something. Yeah. yeah, like he's going to do something. And I'm putting my foot down. Yeah. Mom. Yeah. Mom. Oh, and that scene it in wasn't the stairs. me. Just go talk to the high sparrow. And yeah. then in the street, you see, you know, obviously they only go through the streets in their tiny boxes where they yes. are, you know, completely safe. And then as soon as he steps out, he starts getting bastard yelled at him from the crowd. Yeah. And this, as we recall, is an adolescent who has been shielded from anyone saying that kind of thing to his face his whole life. But I'm sure he knows the rumors of his lineage. But man, oh man, that shakes him, I think, almost more than the sparrows not letting him in. It's this crowd, this his people, he thinks. Yeah yelling these terrible things at him. Well, and I mean, then he just goes and gets back in his tiny box and runs away. Between the interaction with those guards kind of at the front and then the people yelling, it would be very hard to feel regal after yes. that series of interactions. Or even to know what to do. I mean, yeah. because, you know, his guards say, give us the word and we'll cut these people down. And right. I don't know what I would do in that situation. And uh, Tommen probably wisely, although that's a word it's hard to use yeah, in regard to him. wisely, prudently. Prudently, maybe. Says, <laughs> that's a bad idea, but he doesn't look good. And so chaos is coming, to paraphrase oh, your ad very for nice. base camp. Chaos is coming. So should we start from the beginning with our full recap here? I think we've pretty much covered what happens in King's Landing, except that the last thing in the beats of that storyline for our Lannisters and Tyrells is that Tommen has to acknowledge to Marjorie that he was unable to do the one thing she's asked of him. Right. And so she storms out. And the really cruel thing that's completely justified in that moment is he says, will you come back? And she says, I need to be with my family. And it makes it very clear that by marriage, she's Tommen's, but her family is her brother. Right. Who's now in a cell. And her father, who's been the dopey father, who's the master of coin, has been sent to the Iron Bank basically to die by Cersei. Really? I oh, think she's, yeah. I think it was just get out of here while I while I maneuver while against I maneuver your daughter. Against I don't, th- I don't think he's going to get killed by the Iron Bank. They don't do that. Yeah, well, but that creepy Kingsguard dude who yeah, was like, like his the personal guy. Kingsguard oh, or, or, or man. Trant. Yeah, he is, he is the creepiest of the Kingsguard. I agree. And that assignment, even if you didn't know much around the context of that, just the way they filmed that and the yeah. music and it was like, and the way oh, this, kind of is, appears out of the background. this is very deeply foreboding, yeah. I feel. Yeah, yeah. But it does set, I mean, it's nice because we're obviously in King's Landing. This season is all going to be about Cersei versus Marjorie, And I think that's really cool. It's a good setup. It's yeah. a good setup. Yeah. And so at this moment, Cersei has the upper hand. Marjorie did last week. What's next? We Who shall see. knows? I don't know. You don't even know. I actually kind of know. Because I think <laughs> in that particular, in that in very, and, and I should say, by the way, and I'll try not to say this too much, that in this episode, we have pretty much bid the books goodbye. Bye-bye books. They're receding into the <laughs> distance. The Cersei-Marjorie thing is an exception. It provides a through line throughout book four. So I'm assuming that will follow those steps Fairly closely, but the rest of it, we are off the map. So yeah, Loris was never arrested for being gay. Loris has a whole yeah. Loris has a whole other story. He yeah, but the the Marjorie Cersei thing is and with involving the sparrows that is as I think they say canonical. But the rest of the story, do they? They do. do. They say that. Not me. I'm way too cool. (laughs) 
Yes. You said exegesis 20 minutes ago. I kiss girls all the time in Canada. Um, The... No, but this is important, and I'll try not to harp on it, but it means that, you know, the showrunners have been pretty loyal to the books in many ways, like when we talked about last year about how they handled, say, the trine of Tyrion. It was all about how are we going to make this scene in the books work for TV. That is our job. Now they can do whatever they want. They have established and declared that. And that means that we can think and talk about the show and react to the show in terms of what they want to do with it as opposed to how they're handling their adaptation job. And that's kind of exciting and a little scary for us. Like we've talked about, if they've departed from the books, I don't know. It also means that Greta's not liking it as episodic television. The bar has been raised. If they're going to veer from the books, they better be making better episodic television. Yeah, because they, 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 they now can do what they want. One thing, by the way, they are doing is they are absolutely being merciless and cutting down the expanding storylines of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in, in, in the fourth and fifth books especially, the number of characters just metastasize every chapter. It's like, <laughs> That's the a hell good is way that? of putting it. And they are absolutely refusing to do that. They, it does feel malignant yeah, at times. It does. And with, <laughs> with the exception of the High Sparrow, I don't think we've met a significant significant new character yet this season. Am I right? Are the Sand Snakes mm. significant? Well, that's a good question. Should, we move, now on yeah. Should we move on to Dorne? I think, they ha- I think they are significant, but I feel like they were... That what not from this season, though. I mean, they've been around. Well, they were indicated. Right? They are just to, if you don't know, they are our old friend Oberyn's uh, illegitimate daughters. Just as Jon Snow, you get the surname Snow in the north if you're a bastard. In the Dorne, you get the surname Sand. So they are his illegitimate daughters who he has recognized as his illegitimate daughters. And uh, they are now, as we have seen, plotting for vengeance. Well, just like Zena Warrior. Yeah, yeah, I want to like say I'm into that. that was a real sort of dip into camp, I think, oh, to have but, these gorgeous yeah. young women in their revealing outfits, each with their own weapon. You know, yeah, it, it was pretty fair. much on the level of He-Man, Master of the Universe at that moment. I prefer She-Ra, but that's There fair. you are, you see. But it <laughs> so was very She-Ra. That scene where the guy is buried in the sand up to his yeah. neck and she throws the spear and it goes into his head. That scene, for some reason, I was like, it gave me Game of Thrones deja vu. Like, have we seen that before, or am I just <laughs> only insane? on this show? Are you really? like again? With again the with the spear and the guy in the head? Yeah, I, don't I think just so. there was something about it where I was like, I have seen this thing happen before. All I can think about, as far as that guy, I think they say is the captain of the ship that brought right, right, right. And do we ever see him talking to Jamie Lannister? Jamie Lannister says, Yeah, I don't he, think he says so. to Bronn, "Oh, I gave him a big bag of gold," and Bronn says, "A lot of good that's going to do you if he decides he gets more gold from somebody else." And all I could think about that poor actor was him calling his agent and going, guess what? I got a job on Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to make my career. And he shows up in the set and he says, well, we'd like to bury you up to your head in this sand and put a scorpion on your head. He says, great. And then what do I do? He says, then you get a spear in your face. Pretty much 10 seconds later. Yes. And, he says, and, and I hope the actor then said to the director, well, what's my motivation <laughs> for getting a spear in my face? Gold. 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 I was like, this is a little silly with the whip and the spear and the knife. And yeah, it's like, yes. That's, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. But what we've got in door now is Jamie and Braun. Yeah. And Sand Snake's on their tail. Because. <laughs> oh, good one. As I believe the Grateful Dead put it. <laughs> And so we have Illyria and the Sand Snakes plotting revenge against the Lannister girl they have in their grasp, and now there's a race to her. Right, because will they Jamie want... Will get there first, or will they? They want her to start a war, and because they hate the Lannisters, and Jamie's trying to rescue her. There's that great moment where he refers to her as his niece, and Bronn just looks at him and yeah. says, Your niece. Your niece, huh? Mm. I've been doing this sort of thing a long time. I'm good at it. That's why you're here. I know. Why are you here? Why not send 40 of me? Or an army? Unlike most folks, you've actually got one. 
Because I don't want to start a war. That still doesn't explain what you're doing here. It has to be me. If I'm putting something like this together, a one-handed man who happens to be one of the most recognizable faces in Westeros is not... It has first. to be me. You set your brother free, didn't you? Ron, so good. Isn't he, did so I not good. say yeah. he's not the best character? No, in my notes, I actually wrote Peter's right about Bron. Bron is the best. Yeah. Bron is the best. I remember this years ago when I was a writer. The most fun characters to write are those with the least inhibitions and the least limits on their behavior because they can do and say anything. And that's true of Tyrion to a certain extent. But it's really true of Bron, the sellsword with no allegiance. You know, he's great. If you see your little brother, tell him I said hi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so many good lines in that interaction. I also really loved when he said the thing about, like, my life has been exciting. I want yeah. my death to be boring. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. great. It was really that nice. Was really great. Yeah, kind of perfect. Um, this may or may not be a good moment, but let's talk a little bit about fight choreography in Game of Thrones. Because oh, this good. was the first episode, if I'm not mistaken, the fourth, with some really good fights or really big good fights. swashbuckling, yeah. Some swashbuckling. And there were two big fight sequences that was Bronn and Jaime versus the sentries in Dorne. And then there was the big fight at the end on the streets of Marine or the alleys of Marine, really, with the Sons of the Harpy and the Unsullied and our heroes, Grey Worm and Sir Barristan the Bold, as he is called in the books. And I am a fight choreography nerd, as you might not be surprised <laughs> to hear. I am not surprised. I am not, I'm not surprised. And this grew out of every boy's fascination with sword fights because Freud was right about some things. <laughs> and uh, grew into an appreciation of the theatrical use of combat because at its best, fights are expressions of character through physical action, right? At their worst, they're big, loud wastes of time. Yeah, I find them kind of boring most of the time. And there's a good reason for that because guys pretending to hit each other with swords is dull unless they express character. And there has been some great character fights in Game of Thrones. Um, one of my favorites, for example, first season, the street fight between Jamie and his guys and poor dead Ed Stark with his. And when he's fighting with uh, Jory, I believe, is the head of uh, Ned's guard. And he's sort of fighting with him and they do that thing that court to court, which is when you've sort of got your swords held against each other. And it's a classic staple of cinematic sword fighting. Heart to heart. Heart to heart. Yeah. And that's. And, and it's more exciting when it's lightsabers because of all the sounds. But yeah, yeah, go on. yeah. But we've seen it a million times. And they're doing <laughs> this you, and they're Jordan. sort of staring at each other's face. And Jamie very quickly pulls out a knife and stabs Jory in the eye and kills him. And there's that look on Jory's face, which is part. There's a knife in my eye. But there's also part. <laughs> you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And so that establishes Jamie as a brutal and unfair fighter. Uh, similarly, the great fight with when we meet Bronn in the Airy, which ends with a great line when Lisa says, you didn't fight honorably. And he points down the hole where he just threw the guy and said, he did. <laughs> yes. Fight reveals character. I thought that the whole last big fight sequence with the Sons of the Harpy, as exciting as it may have been, wasn't really a good fight sequence. No, I thought it was... I wrote boring with yeah. like four O's. Because it's there's only so many times we can see guys get killed and stabbed and run through, and it's not that interesting. Maybe the single best fight was the fight that ended last season between Brienne and the Hound. That yeah. was a really good fight. Because that was about character and how far each of them were willing to go and how the Hound matched Brienne's expertise with brutality and how Brienne was able to call up even more brutality and defeat him, which was really extraordinarily interesting to learn. And I will say that there was an intentional homage in that fight when uh, the Hound grabs Brienne's blade and starts the second sequence of the fight 
to the single greatest cinematic fight choreographer ever, William Hobbs, who choreographed the fights in the movie Rob Roy, in which it ends with a climactic sword fight between Liam Neeson, the hero, and Tim Roth, the villain, in which Liam Neeson does the same thing. And they said, yes, we were referencing that, because William Hobbs is the greatest and must be worshipped as a fight choreographer. Thus endeth the fight choreography (laughs) nerdery. I would like to say that scene with Jamie fighting the folks from Dorne, yeah. where he grabs the sword with yeah. his golden hand. Yeah, I did just love, and how he like has to <laughs> get it out. Pull it and he has out this moment of surprise. Hand. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, that works." Okay, yeah, I thought that was, <laughs> that was really great. fun. That was a and better was, fight. Yeah, yeah, and, that was and, neat. And also, again, we see Bronze sort of duplicity and his brutality, and that's pretty awesome. But and, yeah, that yeah, was that, a good fight. That moment too, where he's like, "That guy will move slowly yeah, enough go for get you." Him. <laughs> yeah, really where great. he cuts down the guy's horse so that Jamie has somebody to fight. <laughs> yeah. I've always wondered about that. We're going to be talking to a medieval scholar later. Maybe I'll ask if you're charging somebody in a horse, why don't you? always attack the horse, as brutal as that might seem. Because the horse could be useful to you 20 minutes later once the guy's dead, but the guy's not useful if the horse is dead. This is why you don't need to ask the professor then. Oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you. Consider that asked and answered. Now we have a horse! Like, we had no horse. We were going to be slow. Now we have a horse. We get to go faster. It's good. He always wanted a Dornish stallion. Still to come on Nerdat Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Sago, we talk about Jon Snow's amazing ability to resist literally all temptation to leave the wall. That and what is going on with Tyrion. But before we get to that, we wanted to see where the connections lie between Game of Thrones and real medieval history. So we had the conversation with a historian named Valerie Garber. That and more when Nerdat Recaps returns. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Welcome back to Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal. I'm Trisha Bobita along with Greta Johnson and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me's Peter Sagal. We were thinking that this era that the show is sort of kind of maybe based on medieval history is probably something that we should know a little bit more about. It would make us even nerdier when we talk about Game of Thrones to talk about real medieval history. Yeah, I feel like we need some accurate historical context. (laughs) Absolutely. And someone must be an expert on this. Right? Yes. It turns out Valerie Garver is just such a person. She teaches an honors course at Northern Illinois University called Game of Thrones, Television and Medieval History. So when you say honors class, though, like honors class, I mean, they're watching Game of Thrones. Yeah, this is legitimately honors. This is rigorous. So we asked Professor Garver to walk us through the course. They have to watch at least two episodes per week. And we talk about them quite intently. We also, most weeks, are going to watch an episode in class and then discuss it. And in addition, we assign readings. So I selected some historical readings that either reflect certain aspects of the show or are parts of history that the show is drawing directly upon, like the Wars of the Roses. My colleague chose some readings about television and media and the business of HBO. And then we also have had the students do these presentations, and they've been really fantastic on either historical topics or media-related topics. I know it's a huge class. It's a seminar. There's a lot of different topics in the syllabus. But if there's like one thing you want your students to walk away from the class from, what is it? Is like a better understanding of medieval history, a better understanding of how television works, just a capacity to use anything as a text for exegesis and scholarship. 
Um, I would say it's just the ability to think critically, because I think by looking at history and reading history carefully, they're going to get that. But also, I think it's been a lesson for quite a few of our students that television isn't just mere entertainment, that there's a lot that you can see in a television show and that you can really think through how does this draw upon historical aspects of the past and what does that say about how modern people think of the past, but also how does the show reflect what's going on in modern culture and how does this all come together? And I think it's going to help them really, for the rest of their lives, I hope, look at television and look at anything they read or write much more critically than they would have otherwise. Okay. Can you give an example of a student who pulled something out of the show that you just thought was very insightful or you know, the stuff about sexual violence that is on the syllabus must be really interesting to talk about in a classroom setting. What's the actual reaction like of the students who are not dropping, as you said, but are getting an earful? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. We've definitely talked a lot about the sex in the show and especially about the nudity. So that's been kind of an ongoing debate in our class. We, I noticed uh, you had some readings about the difference of the male gaze and how f- women were being shorted. And yes. this actually is perhaps our primary obsession. <laughs> So we'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, the the general discussion of the class has been interesting because students recognize to a certain degree that HBO's brand includes showing nudity. I mean, that's kind of a hallmark of their shows. Yes. So Outside the expected. ivory tower, we call them boobies. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in class, I've discussed quite a bit about the nudity. And it's been interesting because some students say, well, sometimes the camera lingers too long. Other students will say... Well, I think it was okay. I think it served the purpose of the character. So, like, just to give an example, you know, Daenerys, obviously, in the first two seasons, there's quite a bit nudity for that particular character. And the discussion is, is this actually useful in showing her vulnerability, especially in the first season, to show that she's a victim? Like, in some ways, is the lingering camera helping with that? Or is this just a voyeuristic sort of thing that pleases the male gaze? And then especially students have discussed, is there anything that pleases the female gaze? And, you know, you ask, like, is there anything that students said that was particularly insightful? And we have a student in the class um, who's gay, and she said, actually... My partner and I, we really like this part of the show, the fact that there is all this female nudity. So she said, I think that we have to complicate it and say this isn't just about pleasing the male gaze. Sometimes this does please the female gaze. But it has been a question. And then we've talked quite a bit about the lack of, you know, male nudity. And so that's been an issue, too. And then that becomes a big discussion of, like, what constituencies is HBO trying to appeal to and why? What about historical accuracy? Uh, Was there uh, nudity in the Middle Ages? Were people naked? Yes, yes. Of course. (laughs) Um, You know, I say of course, but actually they had pretty different standards about nudity than we do. They were in many respects much more comfortable with it than, than modern people are. And so nudity was probably pretty common, something that people would encounter a lot. We know there were people would go, say, bathing And so uh, they would see nude bodies then. And, um, you know, if you read medieval literature, there are certainly lots of accounts that take advantage of, you know, different parts of the anatomy to get a good laugh and things like that. So certainly, you know, that's part of their culture, too. I would say on balance, they're more comfortable with it than modern Americans. As a medieval historian, do you generally feel that the show gets medieval culture society right are there things about it like, well, no one's ever seen that before in popular culture? And are there things that drive you nuts because they're so incorrect? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's problematic, obviously, because it's a fantasy. Yeah, they're, they're definitely dragons. Yeah, yeah I mean, medieval. I think that's safe to assume. Although, you know, it's important to point out that medieval people love dragons. There's a lot of medieval literature that has dragons and other fantastical beasts. So in the sense that that's in the medieval imagination, that's kind of cool that it's also in Game of Thrones. But I think there are some things that it gets very kind of a, an accurate sense, shall we say. And um, that would be particularly the case, I'd say, for how important family is to politics. And that you can't divorce sort of a political life from a family life. That was uh, true in the Middle Ages. And also the importance of these personal bonds among people, that if a person wants power, they have to develop relationships with, say, other aristocrats, other families, or even just the people who are meant to follow them. They have to still find a way to keep their loyalty. And I think the show is quite clever about doing that. So one scene I know that um, I was struck by is in season one when Caitlin has Tyrion arrested at this inn. Yeah. She very cleverly says, oh, I know your banner. You know my dad. You know, you're one of my dad's loyal men. You're one of his banner men. And all these men rise up to help her. And that is a, a wonderful scene for conveying to students. This is how, you know, medieval people interacted, like at least the elite, right. in terms of these kinds of political bonds and relationships. So that part's really great. The one part that sometimes I guess I, I'm kind of like this really misses out in the medieval world is we only get the kind of exciting kind of cutthroat sense, the political sense, there's less of any idea that people have compassion. And I think that's because the compassionate side of the Middle Ages or the kind of like charitable or good things that people did, it wouldn't make for a very exciting TV. Right. You're so seeing, in that you, sense, you, there's huge aspects of the Middle Ages that get completely left out. So you get I mean, a very nice kind of one-dimensional view. There are nice parts in the yes. Middle Ages. Yeah, there I, really, nice bits. <laughs> I love the phrase, the compassionate part of the Middle Ages. I feel like we just do not utter that phrase often enough in life. I know. Well, the pop culture view, right, is medieval means something bad or you know. boring yeah that yeah. too <laughs> so i'm wondering you know you talk about the importance of family relationships and politics in the middle ages is that necessarily any different from now though do you think not necessarily, but I think that a lot of people now would say politics can be divorced from the personal. And I think we have a much clearer sense of a line between public and private. I think it's getting blurred and it's not a perfect line, but we do have a sense that some things are private. So a good example of this would be like letters. You know, you can write a letter, you stick it in an envelope, you can pretty much hope it's going to stay private. And maybe the only person who ever reads it is the recipient and maybe they burn it. And that's the end of it. But in the Middle Ages, letters were public documents. You know, if you send a letter, you expected other people to read it. So well, how? They were often read aloud. That was how you often received a letter, yeah. especially if you were someone important and the letters received at court. It was often read aloud. Obviously, there are ways to send messages that are more private. But, right. you know, that's just an example. Right. I think about that a lot in Game of Thrones is that idea of the economy of information. You know, if yes. you can't just go Google something... How do you figure out what you need to know? And I think that ties in a lot to those sort of personal relationships, yes. too. It does. And I love that Game of Thrones does reflect something about the Middle Ages that's very true, which is that communication is poor and it's not fast. And so I like in the show that sometimes people have no idea what's going on somewhere else, even though they would clearly benefit from knowing. I've always so. thought that, that uh, George Martin introduced the notion of ravens as a cheat to get around that. Because he wanted to set this vast epic on this, you know, Europe-sized continent. But mm -hmm. he didn't want to have to wait two months for a horse rider to get from the south part to the north part to get something moving. So he said, fine, yeah. they have ravens that can carry messages. Yeah. Go. And I've spent way too much time thinking about how the ravens know where to go. <laughs> but I spent way too much time with this, as everybody knows anyway. Actually, here's something, and, and I don't know anything about medieval history per se, but something that is, I think, really unrealistic is how static – 
the history of of Westeros of the imaginary world is compared to the real medieval world because not only the techn the lack of technological advancement and it se they seem to be stuck in the same kind of late middle age almost early renaissance technology for millennia but also the fact that houses single ruling houses have ruled for a thousand years which couldn't happen isn't it true that the events that we're now seeing in the show which houses being destroyed by others uh, civil wars uh, as we see with say the house Bolton, as we see in season five, you have bastards who have their own ambitions and are throwing things over to get their own landhold. But doesn't that happen all the time? And that's why we did. I mean, every time you look at a map of the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. it seems to be changing depending on whatever 50 year period you're in. Right. Well, I mean, some periods, I would say there are some things that do stay a little bit more static than just 50 years. But I think you're right that it doesn't seem reasonable that, say, a dynasty is going to last for a thousand years. But if nothing else, there's been enough dynasties that have run out of male heirs. Right. right. And so that happens. And the other thing is that medievalists increasingly talk about how the aristocracy and the elite in the Middle Ages is much more fluid than what they want to make out. Aristocratic families will claim, oh, we're descended from, say, Charlemagne, and they'll create this nice history for themselves, which isn't entirely untrue, but they're emphasizing certain aspects, making themselves a appear more static than the family actually is, that there's a lot more shifting and movement in terms of who holds power. Right. Is there anything that you wish we would see in Game of Thrones, maybe season five or season six, from like the medieval world that is like something you love as a historian that's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if they could make this into part of the TV show? Well, in season five, the thing I guess I'm excited about is the sparrows. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> because as a medieval historian, of course, I'm very interested in religious history. And um, the religion part of the show has been, I, I think, pretty fascinating. But to me, it's very interesting to see this sort of ascetic movement where there's an emphasis on sort of poverty. And I'm fascinated by this because I'm very interested in, in nuns myself. And so it's interesting me to more. see this, you know. <laughs> About the nuns? Yeah, why the, are you so interested in nuns? Well, I, I mean, I think it's pretty fascinating that women in the past would take a vow of obedience and poverty and kind of seclude themselves, not entirely, necessarily in every case. But they would do this, and it's kind of interesting to think about why would they do this. I mean, I certainly certainly think religious conviction has a lot to do with it. But it's also an opportunity to become educated um, and to do different things. But it's also this idea... I think that nuns shared with monks, which is that you give up things in order to do good for others. That sometimes worked well. You know, when I was talking about the, like the good side of the Middle Ages, like that can be a really positive sort of aspect of it. But on the other hand, sometimes they can come across as looking hypocritical. I mean, and that's kind of a classic thing. Medieval people themselves criticized um, members of the church. They would say, well, look at these monks. There's this major monastery, Cluny, um, which came under criticism because they said, well, they're too wealthy. Yeah. Aren't monks supposed to be poor? So it's, it's a kind of a fascinating thing to kind of look at people's religious convictions and then how the, do they actually live out their religious life. And this looks like a kind of interesting chance here in season five to kind of explore some of those issues, which I think haven't been quite explored in the earlier seasons. Is there a historical analog for this militant order of monks, the sparrows? That's a good question. In some senses, they remind me a little bit of Franciscans in the sense that they are clearly living a poor life and they want to serve the poor. But I think it kind of remains to be seen right. um, what, what's going to happen because that there's going to be an alliance, it yeah. looks like, between Queen Cersei and the High Sparrow. Right. 
Valerie, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. It's been like far too much fun. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's really I've fun. enjoyed it. Yes. And we want to come take your course. I want an honorary doctorate in Game of Thrones. I just want to, I just want to be able to put that on my wall without doing any of the work. Listening to Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal. I'm Trisha Bobita here with Greta Johnson and Peter Sagal. Lannister. Baratheon. Stark. Tyrell. They're all just spokes on a wheel. Uh, let's go north to where we see some arbitrary sword fight training because winter is coming, but we're oh, I really love like, creepy Stannis and Melisander, like gazing upon Jon Snow <laughs> fighting. I thought that was really interesting. On both counts. Yeah, we need to get to Melisandre because that was my other <laughs> my other low point of the episode. Yeah, how old is she? That's what I would <laughs> That's like a good to question. Know. And where does she find a gym? <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. laser hair removal. Let's yeah, just... Oh, Lord. <laughs> it is strange to realize that this took place in a period in which there was no pubic hair. But <laughs> Yeah, that was a thing. That was a thing. But I thought that was ridiculous. Oh, okay. it, was, it was completely ridiculous. I mean, Let's the idea, tell the like, audience like, what we're discussing. Yeah, this is obviously, this is the scene. <laughs> we're still up at the wall. Stannis is getting ready to leave. There are moments between Stannis and his daughter, which was nice as a Stannis fan. <laughs> you know, I'm on Team Stannis 40% more. <sighs> yeah, because of that nice he little... he was a good dad. He was a nice dad. He was a nice dad to his weird-looking daughter. I yeah. understand hey. that that's important. No, I mean, that's the whole, that's the gist, yeah. right? That's right. what makes him a nice dad. If she were, like, adorable and perfect, then there wouldn't be any question of whether he needed to be nice to this yeah. daughter, right? Yeah. Oh, in this world, no, daughters are not treated in any way by yeah. their fathers. So right, only, exactly. Only Ned Stark and Arya have we seen any father actually look at their daughter as something other than... Just right. a political That's true. asset. Yeah. yeah. So no, this makes Stannis a good guy. Yeah, I'm really? No, I know. I'm now. saying it makes Stannis a good guy. I'm still like not super impressed with him because you know, winter so now is the coming. The people who like yeah. Stannis are over here, yeah. and Greta is over there. Yeah. You need to That's be fine. Patient. I will keep I standing here. I feel, Greta, you need to be more patient with difficult, emotionally unexpressive men. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that Greta is going to spend the rest of the hour in a, in a froth, oh my let's God. you and I talk about the episode, Trisha. All right, so here we go. The Red Woman, she, I think I think we, there's a new worst, though, and it's actually Stannis' wife is the worst. She's pretty, but she's always been bad. Yeah, but now, like, whenever she opens her mouth, she just says the meanest stuff she about her daughter. She is a mean person. And that makes the Red Woman, who's terrifying, suddenly seem sweet in comparison. You have to be pretty cold to make the Red Woman seem motherly. In any way. And in that scene where she goes, ugh, our daughter's the worst, basically, to Stannis. And then the Red Woman's like, no, she is your daughter, so she's wonderful. Only if this character is actually a pathological, terrible person, Stannis' wife, does Melisandre not seem even crazier. So they're playing that well, I think. Yeah. I really love, too, the stare down between those two. Right <laughs> after that interaction, there's this moment of like, oh, are they going to try and stare each other down? And Stannis's wife just cowers. Yeah, well, Stannis says, we, and this, I don't even know if I know this from the books or the TV show, but she, and this is what makes that whole arrangement possible, is, a, is the primary follower of Melisandre from a religious point of view. She believes in the one God and she's all for Melisandre. There, wasn't there a moment, am I making this up, in which she actually approved 
of Stannis getting it on with Melisandre yeah. when they did that? Yeah. yeah. She's like all for that because Melisandre is the prophet of the true way. So she's a bit of a fanatic, which I guess justifies her a little bit. I don't know. Really? I don't know. That... I just can't get over the ridiculous camp quality of <laughs> Melisandre coming in and saying, well, Jon Snow. Oh, my God. What about this? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was and Jon Snow amazing. spending like having this deep stare down with her navel or maybe <laughs> not her navel. And that was just hilarious. And I really it was hard not to laugh. And I and, laughed. And you, you did? <laughs> I yeah, did. I laughed. I just felt so bad for Kit Harrington having to like <laughs> basically have an erection on his face for <laughs> yeah. the entire interminable scene. It's like, OK, Kit, we just want you to stare at her breasts and like totally lose it in lust. And he's like, really? And they're like, yeah, that's what you got to do. And he's like, all right. (sighs) (laughs) It's radio. You can't see his face, guys, but just thank us. Just be glad that you're not seeing this. It does does just add to the litany of ways in which people are trying to convince Jon Snow to leave the wall and go fight. Yeah. It's North true. It's true. Everybody has tried everything. Yeah, now we Davos. can officially say that. <laughs> All right. You've, you, we failed with appeal to honor, vengeance, your own position. How about these boobies? <laughs> no, really? No, really? The boobies All aren't right. going to work? No? All right. Then stay no? here and really? Oh, damn. You know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> I think he knows a little bit, which is like, stay away from that. That is a bad idea. So you think he actually, you don't think she's going to break him down eventually? You I, think he's going to well, stand firm? I think, if you will? as it were, as it were, I think even Jon Snow, who knows nothing, as we know, <laughs> uh, as we know, knows that in regard to Melisandre, the screwing he would get would not be worth the screwing he would get. Mm-hmm. I feel like he won't. But I'm a little worried that he will sleep with her eventually. Yeah. But we'll see, I guess. Yeah. We shall see. Slightly farther south at Winterfell. Yes. We have Sansa getting some really great Littlefinger side eye as she recounts the version of her family's history that she knows. Because he's basically saying, yeah, your aunt was kidnapped and raped and that's what happened. That was a pretty blatant wink to the audience about that theory everyone has. The theory, which I found out has a particular name. Which is R plus L equals J. That is the name of the theory. That's a really (laughs) lame name of the theory. Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, the fans on the various boards and, you know, Westeros.org and all those places are trying to talk about it without necessarily giving away what they're talking about. Oh, that's cute. So you have to go and check it out. So I will say if you want to know what we're talking about, go to like Westeros.org or uh, (laughs) whatever. That's the most beautiful web throw I've ever heard. (laughs) And, And just look up. Go to nerds.biz. Um, nerds.biz. R <laughs> plus L equals J, and you will know what we are talking about. Because this is actually, this is a legitimate spoiler that I read and felt bad that I knew it now. Oh, really? I, know, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's not a spoiler per se. It is a prediction based on the text. It's, it's very solid. As a matter of fact, I didn't put this together, but I, I had read an anecdote that um, D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, the showrunners, convinced George R. R. Martin to let them adapt his show for TV by meeting with him and saying, we have figured out, open parenthesis, this theory, close parenthesis. And he said, you're right. And thus, Mm. I will let you do the show. But specifically what they said was, we have figured out who Jon Snow's mother is. 
they laid out this the theory, <laughs> and they and they said, "Yep, you got it. So you can adapt my show. You read it there carefully. You're as devoted to the backstory and the hints as, as the all best the other friend. nerds. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you can do it. So yeah, so and so it was interesting because Sansa's version of history that she provided is, as far as that theory goes, not true. And it seems like Peter Baelish knew that, which was interesting. So that makes if Peter Baelish knows that, that that's not what happened, then he knows interesting things that might affect his future actions. I had this really terrifying moment during that scene where I wondered to myself, is someone going to make a Game of Thrones prequel? And I got worried. We don't Why? have to talk about it right this second. Why? Just because there is so much stuff that happened from before that you could, yeah. be, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, yeah, but like the, the idea of like, the... can someone actually capitalize off of the fact that so many things that people are talking about are things that happened in the past? George R. R. Martin wrote a couple of stories called the Duncan Egg stories, which take place in the earlier past in the Game of Thrones universe hmm. that could be fodder for that. It's but well that's right. we're getting well that's yeah just, yeah that's getting it's a little ourselves. divergent <laughs> yeah I think we're I mean we've almost covered it we do have Tyrion 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 and can I just do my dramatic reenactment of that scene you can <laughs> that brilliant like annoying little yeah, brother I'm thing. not going to shut up <laughs> I feel might like... as well take off my damn gag I feel like he opened his mouth more though I feel like it was more like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that horrible audio. <laughs> Everyone. That moment, who are you? I am your captor. Do you have any wine? Do you have wine? <laughs> yes. Also, the way, I mean, I didn't realize this, but because apparently there was some intentional ambiguity in the last episode where Jorah Marmont said, I'm taking you to the queen. Yeah. And people thought, oh, I'm taking you back to Cersei. We've seen that she wants his head. I knew where he was going, so I didn't see that. But if you were, say, Tyrion, and you didn't know that, you hadn't read the books. Yes. Tyrion should have read the book, then he would have known. <laughs> yeah, Tyrion should have read the book. He's waking up, podcast. tied up, believing he's being taken back to his sister, the, the queen, who will the dowager the, queen, who at best will torture him to death. That's the best case scenario, and he's pretty cool given that. He's like, I'm going to talk my way out of this. And the moment <laughs> when, you know, he's trying to talk his way out of this, like he's talked his way out of a lot of stuff, and Jorah just walks over and just boom. Yes, was yeah. Cool. I thought Jorah, you know, I thought of him sort of as like a a lame pushover. Not but anymore. I liked, yeah, like even that opening scene where he steals the boat. Yeah, it was like, oh man, Jora. He. This is a new. This is a new and not necessarily improved Jora. This yeah, is a, this yeah. is a lovesick, disgraced Jora. Yes. Yeah. And he. Yeah. His desperation. You can see it. Yeah. So it's. Yeah. I don't know. I mean. There, there is that laugh from Tyrion. It's like, where well, you're taking me where I was going in the what first place. What a waste of a good kidnapping. Yes. I also love the Westeros is West. The really condescending <laughs> yes. one-liners in that scene in the yes. boat. That's why fun. we call it Westeros, because George R. R. Martin wasn't that good at naming things. <laughs> Let me ask you guys a question before we wrap up. The episode ends with both Grey Worm, a central character, and Barristan, a central character, mortally wounded, lying in a big pile of bodies. Oh, you don't think they're dead, huh? Do you? Th- I'm asking you oh, guys. Okay. Do you think they're dead? Dead. Dead. We have a vote for dead. Yes. I assumed they were dead and I did not care. Whoa. That's harsh. I do not think they're dead. And I don't know, I should say, because we did get screeners uh, and we've departed from the books. That whole fight did not happen in the book. So I don't know. But I am just putting myself in the heads of the showrunners. And I think two things. First of all, it would be a somewhat pointless death in just dramatically. Like they get into a fight and they get killed by some guys in the street. Okay. That's a bad exit for those guys. It is a lame ending. It it also depends entirely on how desperate they need 
Daenerys to be. That's the thing. From, when Tyrion arrives. From yeah. the plot point of, you know, wow, my council is getting smaller and I don't actually want it to be. Yeah. How convenient yeah. for this really smart Lannister to show up. For, and, and it is possible that they would execute, get rid of Grey Worm and Barristan. It was a long fight scene just to get them killed if that's what was necessary. I think they're going to be invalided in the sense that they are not dead because we like those characters. I remember the whole thing with Grey Worm and his chaste love of uh, yeah, the that slave be, and that yeah. whole thing that where is that going to go? And Barristan's a great guy. So I think that they're invalided, they're wounded, they're out of action, but they are not dead. That is partly, my theory. Partly the reason why... I figured at least with Barristan for sure is that he died is that that scene ahead of time where he was hanging out with Daenerys and the sun was setting and they were having such a wonderful time remembering. Yes. Just kind of got me thinking of like, oh, this is his last cute time moment. It's quite possible. But I do. I could totally see Grey Worm and Barristan being invalided. Yeah. And then Tyrion shows up and Daenerys starts to trust Tyrion. And then those two are healthy enough to take issue with it's that. Possible. I could it's see possible. that. I, it's, you guys could be right. We could we could start next episode or at least a scene in next episode with their funerals and Daenerys going, what am I going to do? Yeah, but it's you know? also just as likely that you start it with Daenerys looking at them in their hospital beds sort of out of it. And I'm I betting hope they're on that. not hospital beds because that would be a problem yeah. in the continuity of the world. Yeah, I want IVs. I want like the beeping from the <laughs> beeping. monitors. Yes. I want, yeah. Yeah. I no, that you'll, you'll, you'll be now. like a mason. I don't know what they have. No, you, there's a metaphor. God, I'm leaving. Well, that seems to be as good a place as any to conclude this recap. And as always, we want you to join the conversation. You can ask us a question or suggest a topic for us to discuss on an upcoming episode of Nerdette Recaps by leaving us a voicemail. Yes, call us 312-948-4687. Find us online at wbez.org slash recaps. We're at Nerdat Podcast on Twitter, and he is Peter Seigel. I am. The show is produced by us with help from our WBEZ cohort, especially Joe Dassault, Colleen Pellissier, and Brad Helm. Our theme music was composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. Thanks for nothing, Peter. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome for nothing. <laughs> If you like what you hear, we would love for you to subscribe to Nerdette on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. And wherever you're doing that, if you can rate and review us, give us some stars. Sharing the nerdy love is always appreciated. Yes, thanks to Yoadi for writing that nice review and for not being too precious about book spoilers. We do appreciate that. And as we said, since the show is going wayward from the books, do book spoilers really matter? Thank you, Yodi. Obviously. Thank you. Obviously. If you really cared, you should have read the book. <laughs> I'm not going that far because I'm not reading the books, but I'm just saying. <laughs> but you don't care that who much. Who cares? <laughs> See? You can also find us, as we said, wherever you get your podcast. Just search Nerdette. Yes, we've got more than 80 episodes with a whole bunch of really cool people like Simon Rich, who wrote for SNL, and Scott McCloud, who's like this brilliant comic book theorist. Just search Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us online at wbez.org slash recaps. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.